I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast, South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. In today's episode, sponsored by Tasveer South Asian Film Festival, I'll be talking to Shabana Azmi, one of India's leading actresses and a socially engaged women's rights activist. Azmi has appeared in over 120 films in parallel and mainstream cinema. She has won five national awards for Best Actress, five Filmfare Awards, numerous international honors, and Padma Bhushan, India's highest civilian honor. Shabana Azmi comes from an illustrious film background. She's married to India's leading scriptwriter and poet, Javed Akhtar. She's the daughter of veteran actress Shokat um, Azmi and celebrated poet Kaifi Azmi. Today, on September 27th, Shabana Azmi is in Seattle for the launch of Kaifi Nama, a film that explores the life and art of her father's distinguished career as an artist and social activist. Shabana Ji, I'm delighted to welcome you to Seattle's most anticipated event of the year, the Swedish South Asian Film Festival, which is the biggest festival of its kind in North America. I'd like to start by talking about your career in India's parallel cinema. You rose to fame by your stellar performance in Sham Benegal's Ankur, for which you won the National Award as Best Actress. And you subsequently acted in some of the finest films of the genre, films like Nishant, Junoon, Arth, Swami, Mandi, Kamla, Par, and the list is endless. So uh, could you talk to us about your experience working for films of this new wave of Indian cinema that you, uh, by your, you know, playing in and acting in some of the most landmark films of the time, marked you out as the most distinguished um, um, actress that was associated with the rise of new cinema, the new wave cinema in India at that time? Well, I really think it's about being at the right place at the right time. Uh, I had just graduated from the Film Institute of Pune with the gold medalist, uh, as a gold medalist. And um, about two, three months after that, Sham Benegal contacted me for Angkor. I remember when we were Shooting the film, I wrote to my mother and said, I think this is a completely different kind of film. It reminds me of Satyajit Ray's work. And uh, it's quite fascinating. It was the first time that I had ever entered a village. Uh, and the whole experience was something which was completely uh, new for me. The film, of course, went on to become a very, very successful film, both commercially and critically, got me the National Award for Best Actress. It was uh, represented uh, in at the Berlin International Film Festival and got a special mention. So it was all very heady and very quick. But what it did is because it was commercially successful, it opened the doors for a whole spate of films that followed, which were not... Uh, following the box office formulae. 
and trying to say, tell stories without uh, mainstream considerations. And uh, it was a very, um, it, the, the whole scenario was very different from what was happening in mainstream cinema, which I was also working in. And uh, I really owe it to my, to my directors and to my writers that they gave me all these wonderful parts to work in. Yeah. And then um, there was this amazing phase of this new wave and, you know, actresses like yourself and Smita Patel, Nasiruddin Shah, Om Puri, Amrish Puri and the likes. Um, and then there was this height of the cinema and then it disappeared. For a long time, we didn't see independent cinema. And I was wondering, you know, what, what brought about that change? You know, I don't think that independent cinema has ever disappeared. I think it has taken on a new avatar. So these films were being made and there was what was called the middle of the road cinema, which was uh, Sai Paranjami and Basu Chatterjee and people uh, like that. And then there were some uh, films which were uh, completely out of this league, like Kumar Shahani and Manikol and people like that. Uski Roti. Enough, yeah. Mm -hmm. there, there, there was enough space for all kinds of films to be made. But uh, time came when the the I think the subjects that parallel cinema was dealing with uh, needed to evolve because younger audiences were coming in. They were people from metropolitan cities, small towns, and they wanted to express their reality. Now, what you see today is a lot of independent cinema, except that it's not talking about feudalism. It's not talking about the villages. It's talking about the small town experience. It's about the small towners struggling in the big city. But these are as much part of India because India is a country that lives in several centuries simultaneously. And I think the, the, the contradictions that come out of that uh, should find a space. That's right. And um, would you agree that there the lines between independent cinema uh, or indie cinema and mainstream cinema over the let's say past 10 years it's slowly blurring yes and I'm very glad uh, for it because uh, very early in my career when I started working in mainstream cinema also people said that you know I was trying to put my legs in both boots and that I was going to sink because there was no um, no such experience of anybody having done that but in retrospect, I think why I did this so early that when I was doing Ankur, immediately after that I also did Fakira, which also became a very commercially big success, and then Amarikar Anthony and Parvarish yes. and all that. Because I think, in retrospect, I didn't know at that time, it was that I wanted to contribute beyond a sincere performance. I wanted to also, uh, my presence should guarantee some distribution uh, for the film. So I figured that if I became a star in mainstream cinema, maybe I would be able to persuade some of that audience into also watching mm. um, parallel cinema. And so how, that's how the journey started. But I used to always say that why should there be so much of a dichotomy between the two uh, cinemas? And then what happened is uh, parallel cinema started occupying center stage and almost all the national awards would go to actors from uh, parallel cinema mm -hmm. and uh, what parallel cinema did is right from the start it gave me a, 
parallel position to the leading la- lady at that time, or like somebody like Hema Malini. Mm-hmm. If I had started from mainstream cinema, then I would still be at the lowest rung of the ladder. But yes. suddenly I got this, uh, you know, this respectability. Mm-hmm. And I think actors figured that there is something more than just money that we should care mm-hmm. about. And so slowly they started working in this kind of cinema. Mm-hmm. And today that line is blurring and I think that's very good because I don't think there should be such clear divisions. There should be either a good film or a bad film and actors should be able to do uh, all kinds of things. Now, for the actor, it's the easiest choice to make because you have to give up your money. Obviously, these films, I've done so many films for free, so many films for which I never got uh, paid, etc. But there was something that I was contributing towards. Now, actors from mainstream cinema have to sacrifice that. But they get so much respectability in the bargain that uh, they sort of taste blood. Mm. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about um, your experience um, you know, studying in the Film and Television Institute of India at that time. Those were the two best years of my life. It was the first time that I had uh, come out of my home mm-hmm. and that I was living in a hostel. Mm-hmm. And it was an entirely different experience. A, because I was exposed to cinema of a kind that was never available for me in Bombay because we had just Bollywood, the Hollywood films that were like about six years old. But uh, there was no Kurosawa, there was no Truffaut, there was no Godard, there was no Bergman. All of which just opened. I was very young and I was very, particularly by Bergman and the performances. I was very, very taken up by that. So I think the fact that uh, you get exposed to international cinema does something to your aesthetics. And the professor that I had, Roshan Tanija, he was, he was marvelous. I really, really learned. There were so many things that he used to talk about that even today I keep discovering. Mm-hmm. And that time maybe I didn't quite grasp it. But like for instance, he used to always talk about the illusion of the first time, which I couldn't understand. And what he used to say is that the whole challenge of cinema is that you speak previously rehearsed lines to give the impression that as if you said them for the first time. Oh, okay. So there should be a built-in spontaneity in spite of the fact that you know your lines. Mm-hmm. You see, and how important uh, that is. Now, in mainstream cinema, you really don't get a chance to experience that so much because as long as you say your lines and it's all right, you know. Mainstream cinema at that time, in the 80s, 90s, were what I call representative acting, which means you just represent the emotion. If you raise your eyebrows, it means that you're not buying it. If you cry copious tears, you're very sad. If you laugh, (laughs) it means you're very happy. So you just represent the emotion like you do in dance. Mm -hmm. You didn't need more than that and you needed to speak your lines without fluffing them. That was the maximum that was required Mm -hmm. uh, from you. Now, of course, it's all uh, changed. And in that process, I think the, the advent of the casting director has made a great contribution in the 
quality of acting that you now see. Because the casting directors went out into the hinterlands, they went into the small towns, they got people who knew the language, and they got them uh, to bring authenticity to mainstream cinema. Now what happens is because acting is basically about reacting. So when you see somebody who's reacting with truth, it becomes very impossible not to react to that. Mm -hmm. So you start making demands of yourself because the ecosystem around you Mm-hmm. gets uh, changed and I think that has brought a shift in um, in what is demanded of actors and what actors are demanding of themselves also with uh, the film industry being recognized as an industry uh, you know money started coming in from corporates money started coming in from banks it was earlier it was possible that you would start a film and shoot about four reels and then the film would disappear and then two years later maybe you would pick it Mm -hmm. up which made it really impossible but now actors can do one film at a time Mm -hmm. so if they need to learn a skill they learn Mm -hmm. a skill if they need to put on weight they'll put on weight if they need to lose weight they'll do that Mm -hmm. i say uh, always that today even rishi kapoor when he was playing in tars he was not playing the guitar he was just strumming Mm -hmm. today he himself would not accept that of himself. He would actually do the, you know. So skills, what is required, all that has led to uh, even mainstream cinema appear more believable Mm -hmm. uh, today. And because films are made more systematically, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of pre-production goes in. Earlier, pre-production was one month and the film was shot over two years. Now, pre-production is over a year and then you shoot the film in three months. Mm-hmm. So all that has changed drastically and I think that cinema is in a happier place because of that. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by what you refer to the introduction of, uh, or when you refer to the introduction of regional accents. So there is an, a, a, a shift towards the provincialization of Indian cinema. You know, in the past, for example, a lot of the films used to be um, either set in Mumbai or Bombay at that time, um, and then slowly they started to be set in Delhi, and now they are in, you know, with the advent of films like Gangs of Wasipur and Hassel and such like that. So there is a shift of um, shift from, um, you know, locating films in in big cities to the provinces, and which is where you know all the accents are coming in. You see, earlier, I think what mainstream cinema was representing was an alternative reality. Mm -hmm. So even if you're a police officer, you live in a palace Mm -hmm. and it's accepted. You're a police officer and your hair is so long and yet it's accepted. It was an alternative Mm -hmm. reality. Slowly now, that has started changing. Because of that change, that alternative reality was there for a reason. It was there for a reason because filmmakers wanted their films to be watched by the lowest common denominator, Mm -hmm. which means it should have a pan-India appeal. Mm -hmm. In that, you cannot afford to locate your characters or your story in a particular locale. What you have to do is, I call it the Miss Nita syndrome. You have a Miss Nita, you don't have a surname, you don't call her Mathur or Desai or Patkar because then she would be Maharashtran or she would be Gujarati or she would be whatever. You don't want that. You want this alternative reality in which Miss Nita and Mr. Vijay mm-hmm. exist. 
all that has now been pared down because the people who are making these films, the writers who are writing them, are people who are located in their places so firmly that that has started coming and the audience has started enjoying that uh, flavor. That's right. I think that's very, very important for a country as diverse as India. If you just take mainstream cinema as the representation, mm -hmm. then it's not fair. No. No. And I think multiplexes have also helped. Multiplexes have helped. Multiplexes have helped. But what we've been saying for a very long time is that you have the National Film Development Corporation, okay, mm -hmm. that uh, funds films. Now, what we've been saying is that instead of funding films which never see the light of day, and they keep lying in the cans, what the government, if it really needs to help, needs to set up a distribution system and ensure theatrical uh, release for the films. Mm -hmm. There are enough number of private producers who will make these films if you can guarantee uh, theatrical release. Mm -hmm. So instead of putting money in production, they should really do it in distribution. And then, because even uh, the multiplex is a very expensive business and uh, to, to get films that are talking about the dark realities of India, they have a problem finding a place in the multiplex. So if we can get uh, theatres with smaller seating capacities with less rates, I think that will help a lot. Definitely. And um, I wanted to, I'll come back to this theme in a minute. Um, and in fact, you know, my next set of questions exactly were about the fact that you managed to successfully combine your career in parallel cinema with mainstream cinema. Um, and um, I was wondering um, if you wanted to sort of maybe move on to the next set of films that you made, that you, you know, acted in, which launched another genre of films, you know, deeply and profoundly feminist, uh, deeply and profoundly feminist narratives. For example, the films of uh, Deepa Mehta that you um, acted in. I'm talking in particular about Fire and also Earth 1947. And I'd like you to sort of talk a bit about your experience doing that. <coughs> See, when I was first offered uh, Fire, it isn't as if I grabbed it immediately. I had many considerations. And um, because I was working in the slums with women, and I said, as it is, it's tough because... Uh, you know, they look at me as a non-believer and that doesn't go well. Their, their husbands don't quite trust a woman who's a non-believer. And I felt that it could, my work in this film could hurt, could harm the work that I was doing outside movies. But the story fascinated uh, me. And uh, Zoya and Farhan were very young at that time. And I told us, Zoya, I said, you know, there's this film and... Uh, I'm wondering whether I should do it. And she said, do you like the script? And I said, yes. She said, so do it. I said, but it's about a lesbian relationship. And she said, so? How old was she She time? was, I think, 18. Oh, my God. Okay. And I suddenly realized that for people of her generation, it doesn't matter. It's no. this generation that's struggling yes. against it. And then I remember talking to Javid about it. And Javid said, see, uh, it's not as if the film will not... Uh, arouse no different uh, reactions and you will be criticized 
But if you can defend the film, if you can defend the reason you're doing the film, then go ahead and do it. And so then I said yes uh, to the film because I just figured that, you know, if you're talking about the rights of minorities, it must include all minorities, including the uh, gay Uh, community. And I think that came as a huge surprise. And there were... I also figured that India is not a monolith. Not everybody would react in mm-hmm. the same way. That some people would be startled, some would be angry, some would be confused, some would be overwhelmed. But a dialogue would start. Yeah. Where, in a society where we pretended as if it does not exist mm-hmm. at all, and that's precisely mm-hmm. uh, what happened. And uh, the the experience. I don't know at what point, very quickly, I think I just understood who Radha was. What I liked very much about uh, Deepa Mehta is that she said, Radha is very centered. Now that to me was such an important uh, thing to say, because I think the stillness that Radha has comes from that fact you know so sometimes when you're in tune with the director director can just use uh, a particular word or a particular statement and it can just bring about magic it's such a powerful thing that you said because obviously i'm not privy to the fact of you know privy to what deepa mehta told you but i can totally visualize radha i can totally see radha going along with the um um you know with with um, the the sister in law to the market and telling her in very quiet terms that what does she say that chawal ka jo pika hai was pike chawal ka swada i remember that very well mm. and the stillness with which you said that mm. it was so powerful no and also in the end when uh, when she challenges her husband because when he says that desire mm. is bad and she says mm. without desire there's no point in living Without yeah. desire, I'm dead. Yeah. And I desire Sita. Yeah. Now, even if you see how she's saying, she's not become a raging feminist. No. But she's played by the rules of the game and she's realized that it hasn't led to anything at all. And so this is something that she wants to do but because she's so cent- cent- centered. Mm-hmm. It really is my favorite uh, scene in the, in the film with the quiet assertiveness with which she speaks her truth. Mm-hmm. That I find very moving. In fact, um, it is, you know, again, a very uh, relevant, um, you know, point that you make over here because, you know, Radha being centered definitely reminded me not only of the point, you know, and the stillness with which, the stillness, in fact, gives her the authority and which is what, you know, unnerves her husband because he cannot understand, you know, that this woman has this agency to tell me in very quiet tones what exactly is wrong and what, where the cracks in the relationship are. And even at a time when her sari is catching fire, she's quite, she's she's quiet. She's quiet. Yeah. So which, in fact, you know, leads me to my next question. And I'm so glad that you refer to the fact that, you know, Radha is not, she doesn't consider herself to be a raging feminist. I mean, she considers herself to be located in Lajpat Nagar in this very middle class or, you know, you know, lower middle class, middle class background. Um, she has never, in fact, and she's quite surprised by the way in which, you know, Sita approaches her yeah. and, you know, um, 
helps her understand where her desire is located or even sort of begin to understand it helps her be, you know helps her understand the fact that she does have desire so it's really very interesting she doesn't see herself as a as a feminist or as, as a revolutionary so my next question is do you think there is a turn a feminist turn in indian cinema today i'm talking in particular about films like anarkali of ara or masan or uh, slightly long answer to this sure yes You see, mythology plays a very dominant role in Indian society, mm-hmm. uh, and a living role. Mm-hmm. So, your notions of the ideal husband is Ram. Your notions of the ideal wife is Sita, quietly appeasing to her husband's desires, subjugating her own mm-hmm. uh, desires, and that for a long time framed the idea of who was a hero and who was a heroine. Society had moved on. but filmmakers don't want to take any risks and they want to make films about subjects that they feel society is ready for so that led to a whole lot of films which were also successful i mean there's a film by meena kumari called mai chup rahungi oh, yes, i will remain silent, silent. Was considered a virtue for women then you had a whole spate of things like mai marne nahi dungi mai jeene nahi dungi aur mai zakhmi aurat aur insaaf ki devi and things like that and they were as much cardboard as the men were so i used mm-hmm. to say that first we had rambos and then we had rambolinas yeah. but we didn't have anybody who had any uh, complexity of what it means to be a, a a woman and it was left to the parallel cinema to to find these layers mm-hmm. now there is a shift because till very recently you never saw working women in in the cinema if you looked at what if you looked at the heroine in hindi cinema you would think that all an indian woman does is wear a yellow chiffon sari and dance in the alps mm-hmm. she was never shown as a working person the fact is that women in india work both in rural india and now some of that has started becoming mm-hmm. visible so that i like I like that there is a change that you can see. I think people are still they have come to the conclusion that the kind of woman who was subservient there is no place for it in society today. But what should this new woman be? They are not quite sure of it. So a lot of time there was also a lot of copying out where a woman came out as a, as self-willed but by the end of the film suddenly she had to realize that oh she was going out of line and she had to be chastised mm-hmm. for it yes you also had two very definite strains so there was the madonna and there was the whore mm-hmm. so madonna was the sacrificing wife the understanding mother the forgiving sister and the whore was somebody who had uh, because of her own history of colonization had golden hair and brown and uh, blue eyes mm-hmm. and pura pura lo- looked upon as the other yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. now that then started the two started coming together and you then saw a whole spate of films where there was what was called the item number mm-hmm. and it was uh, given legitimacy by arguing that it was a celebration of the woman's body 
Now, that is a welcome thing. But did you really, was there any autonomy? When you show fragmented images of a woman's body, you know, a heaving bosom, a shaking, swiveling navel, a shaking hip, you are robbing the woman of all autonomy and subjecting her to the male gaze. That cannot become uh, something that you celebrate as celebrating her mm -hmm. sexuality. You, because the whole business of cinema is the business of images. And how the camera moves de determines the director's intention. I always say that it's perfectly possible to show a nude woman without any vulgarity. Mm -hmm. And you can show a fully clothed woman, mm -hmm. which can be very vulgar. Depends on where the camera is. Mm -hmm. I give an example that Zoya Akhtar, she'll watch the characters, the female characters uh, that she has in her films. Uh, they are so much their own person and she uses them in a way that uh, makes them into people irrespective of their gender. Mm -hmm. And now there is a scene in Zindagi Na Milegi Dubara when Katrina Kaif comes out of the water. Mm -hmm. She's a diving instructor. Obviously, she's not going to come out in a sari. Mm -hmm. So she's in a bikini and she's dripping wet. The camera never goes close to her, just catches her in mid-shot. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you feel, oh, she's a working woman. And then by the time the camera comes to her, she's already worn her gown. So she never, so the camera doesn't, object, yeah, doesn't objectify does her body. not objectify right. her at all. And yet, she's the one who makes the decisions. She's the one who decides that if I want to go and kiss the man, I will. And because I'm kissing him, it doesn't mean that he has to uh, marry me tomorrow. No. Nothing of that. It's no. my, my uh, necessity at that moment. Mm -hmm. So all this has also been happening. But certainly, certainly, there are films today where the women are playing not only more central parts but also um, also breaking the stereotype that's right i just want to sort of go back you know when you were talking about uh, this black and white characterization of women as madonna or as whore in the 70s you have someone like zina taman that comes up you know so she is represented as a working woman but at the same time she's also highly sexualized she's eroticized and she's also a, desiring, a desirable and a desiring subject, unlike in the past where you had Helen, who would be the vamp, you know, she's only for pleasure, but not the marrying types, you know, mm -hmm. and then you have suddenly someone like Zina Taman, and subsequently people like Parveen Babi, which I think sub became role models for Katrina Kaif. Uh, I'm not talking about the item numbers because they have a very, very sort of, you know, superficial um, role in films. Yeah, but you're right. So today's films, you know, women have certainly uh, much more uh, uh, a kind of complexity and agency, which is which needs to be celebrated. Um, so as, um, uh, you know, as someone who's uh, been through uh, an entire, you know, development of Indian cinema because you've seen you know the, you the, make the, me sound so old well I no no that's not what I mean that's not what I mean but what I'm trying to say <coughs> that you've, you've you've been and I apologize if that's the impression I gave no what I, I mean and of course you know that's that's the that that's what gives me so much pleasure to be able to talk to someone who has seen you know how the various shifts have happened and now we are at a very interesting shift and a transition, moment of transition in Indian cinema where um, 
uh, digital cinema, online cinema has suddenly become very powerful where, you know, places like or, you know, spaces like Amazon and Netflix are providing an alternative uh, channel for people to make movies and I wanted to have your views on that. Well, the thing is, of course, it's giving a lot of focus on content and that is important. Ultimately, the realization dawns that it's not about stars and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's about content and so you're seeing content. But I think even so, in such a short time, I'm seeing that there is a certain formula that is being used, which is you use a lot of abusive language, you use... uh, a lot of uh, full-blown sexual activity. I just hope it sort of slides over that because then that can become the formula and then that's not really doing justice to the kind of freedom. I should imagine that it should give you a lot of viability for political cinema which because of the border film certification you cannot do Mm -hmm. in India. There should be different uh, things. So I, I only sound a note of caution that they mm-hmm. shouldn't fall into this bad language and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, you know, I know exactly what you mean. I've seen some of the TV dramas and the series that are being shown on Netflix and also the focus tends to be on sexuality quite a lot and, and of course, of course, language. So as a feminist that you are um, uh, and as a women's rights activist, uh, and this is my last question for you, um, I'm curious to know um, what your views are on the current state of Indian feminism today. Healthy. Mm-hmm. Healthy. Uh, because, see, earlier, in the earlier phase, you were aping the West, so to speak. And uh, feminism in the West is a very individual expression. In India, it has to be about negotiating space within the family because you're a social animal and you have duties and considerations. So it started with aping the West and then realizing, no, but we have a different reality and we have to focus within that reality. Of course, there is a whole section that still sort of apologizes for being called feminist. I think they don't have understanding of what the word feminist is. And so a lot of women say, no, no, but I'm talking about this, but I'm not a feminist. (laughs) But why should you say it in such a defensive uh, manner? But the fact that it is now being located in the Indian uh, society, I think is what gives it strength gives it meaning a meaning and becomes its own thing mm-hmm. that's right and in particular i think there is a sudden sudden shift after the 2012 you know nirbhaya incident there's a lot of um, i mean it was completely we were completely taken by surprise by the by the kind of unprecedented protests that happened and you know forced the government's hand to to bring about policy level changes and things like that. And and I also think that it's fascinating to see the ways in which women, in particular the younger women, you know, the millennials, um, are using social media to be able to articulate themselves without seeking permission from anyone. You know, you just think something, think about something and you say it. And that's a really fascinating development. Yeah, but the social media also gives you the space to vent and you don't have to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. You can just vent and you can say that you're against this and you're against that and this is unacceptable. But what are you doing about it? Mm -hmm. If you want to be a catalyst of change, then you have to stand up and be counted and you have to be working there in the trenches. 
यू नो सो ऑल्सो सोशल मीडिया गिव्स यू द फ्रीडम एंड ऑल्सो गिव्स यू द कम्फर्ट के आपने वेंट करके आपने बोल दिया आपका काम खत्म है नहीं आपका काम खत्म नहीं है बिकॉज इफ यू फील वेरी स्ट्रांगली अबाउट अ सब्जेक्ट देन यू हैव टू गेट इन्वॉल्व एंड यू हैव टू गेट योर फीट वेट एंड द ग्राउंड दैट्स वट आई फील I think that's a very important point because I think what you're referring to is often referred to as clicktivism. You know, I've clicked. You know, I've said I've liked yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. So you're really abdicating your responsibility yeah. and getting your feet dirty and your hands dirty. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time for us um, during this really busy time of yours, and uh, a pleasure to be able to sort of talk to you. I have. studied your films i have worked on your films i have taught your films i have written on your films and i can't tell you how lucky i am to be able to talk to you thank, thank you. you thank you thank you very much yeah thanks